All right, we are in Psalm 139 tonight, and uh, I will be bouncing back and forth between a couple of different places. We'll reference some more stuff on the other side here, um, but that's where we're going to be spending most of our time is in 139. Um, so go ahead and turn there. Let me pray for us, and then we will dive into our stuff for tonight. Father, I thank you that we have this um, praise from our brother David that we see recorded in Scripture. God, I thank you for the truth that is contained in it. And more importantly, we thank you for the reality that this uh, text is pointing to. God, we thank you for your omniscience and your omnipotence, your omnipresence, your eternality. And we hit on a lot of your attributes tonight. But God, I just thank you for the fact that those are, those are real. Um, we get to experience your grace and your goodness um, that flows from your omnipotence. And so, God, I just thank you for that. I pray that tonight, as we look at this poetry, that it would um, become clear to us through your spirit. And so, Father, I pray that as we are investigating, that you would give us clarity of mind and that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds through your Holy Spirit. And we desperately need him among us to do this. And God, we pray that we would apply this rightly in our lives as we leave. And so we look forward to seeing how you will work through your word tonight. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So we are in Psalm 139 tonight, which means we are done with the first four books of the Psalter. Um, and so if you remember from last week, we kind of did that. 10,000 foot view of book three of the Psalter and then book four. And so now we are leaving all that behind and we are looking at book five. And so book five of the Psalter is Psalms 107 all the way through the end at 150. And if you remember, books one and two kind of set the stage for how David uses his own life as kind of the example of what it looks like to be the seed of the woman and that he sees himself in this arc of redemptive history. And then as soon as we get out of Psalm 72, uh, we hit Psalm 73 and things go bad, right? That's whenever we start transitioning in between these books where they are notably darker. The good news is when we get to Psalm uh, 107 with book five, we are now hitting on some of those themes that we talked about from last week. Psalm 106, I'll read it here in just a second, um, but specifically the very end of Psalm 106, which closes out book four, is basically anticipating and longing for this new exodus and this new exile that we're going to have this return from um, Babylon or from what we see thematically from our sin um, that we would ultimately be saved. It is longed for at the close of book four. And what happens in book five, starting in Psalm 107, there is this understanding and this assumption that that new exodus, that that new um, return from exile, it's happening now. It is underway. And we're going to see some of that with David tonight um, and how he is taking on the mantle as part of the seed of the woman who's going to be crushing the seed of the serpent. We'll see that here in a bit. But you got to see that there's hope there. And what happens is... The rest of book five is really going to be reinforcing these promises that were made to David that there's never going to be a king um, or there's going to be a king that's going to sit on the throne forever and it's going to come from David's line. And we know that ultimately leads to Christ. 
But what that thematically is pointing to is that God's going to provide. God's going to save. He is going to, in the same way that he provided salvation through the Exodus, and that sets the paradigm, he's going to provide salvation through our new exile. Yes, in David's perspective, that's forward and looking to Babylon, but also to just salvation in general. And so we're starting to see some of those really big key themes coming together for us tonight. Yeah? Cool with that? So, Psalm 139 uh, is picking up on some of those themes, but I want to read for us the end of Psalm 106, and you can hear this longing kind of language, and then we'll see how some of that's being set up in Psalm 139. I'm going to pick it up in the last two verses uh, that close out Book 4 of the Psalter. It says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. You hear the tone of like there's this assumption that they are scattered. Gather us from among the nations and that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And then book four closes with let all the people say amen, praise the Lord. And there's this benediction that says, okay, that theme is one that's kind of been set in stone. We're moving to the next theme. Psalm 107 picks up. Hey, that's underway. 107 verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. And let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. That is a response to that anticipated new return from exile, this new exodus. And now in Psalm 107, the author is saying, Hey, if you're redeemed and that's you, then say it. Say it out loud. And then the rest of book five is going to be parsing out different aspects of that. Yeah? Cool. All right. So let us go to Psalm 139, which is fairly um, familiar for a lot of us. I'll read it, and then we'll turn over uh, the board and talk about it from there. This is what Psalm 139 says. I'm reading from the ESV. This is, as the superscription says, it's to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have stretched, or excuse me, I've already messed it up. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, and you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know it completely, thoroughly. Verse 5, you hem me in before or behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I cannot wrap my brain around how much you know. Verse 7, where am I going to go from your spirit? Well, shall I flee from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven... You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you or when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. We'll talk about that poetic language here in a bit. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Even as yet, was none of them. 
Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. I do not hate those who uh, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me or the way of pain in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. All right. So let me just go ahead and ask this. Did any part of this psalm seem to not fit so neatly with any other parts of this psalm? Like, did part of this stick out as kind of disjointed? I see Linda over there giggling. Did something stick out to you, Linda? Starting in verse 19, I hate those who hate you. What? Hang on. I thought we were talking about my unformed substance here and how you know. Okay? We'll talk about that. That is where I think we're highlighting these promises made to David and these themes that we've seen from even last week whenever we met and just from book four uh, of anticipating this new exile and this new return from exile. I think that's where we're going to start seeing those connections from the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Okay, so we will get there. I promise you that is the one that historically in Psalm 139 Christians have looked at and gone, I don't really know what to do with that. Okay, we're going to explain that. Cool. All right, Psalm 139. Let's talk about it. So, I'm pulling this from Jim Hamilton, and I agree with him. I think Psalm 139 is actually a chiasm. I think what he is doing is he is starting and ending the psalm with some pretty similar themes, and then the next theme he develops is matched at the end in the, you know, the respective spot, and that leads us to the primary point of this entire psalm, which is verses 7 through 12. And that is where we get this phrase, where am I going to go from your spirit? Where am I going to flee from your presence? And the whole point there is that God is everywhere all the time, right? There's a movie not too long ago, everywhere or everything, everywhere, all at once. And like It's really tugging on this idea of um, that there's this the movie is about the multiverse and that kind of jazz. That's the closest that we can kind of comprehend is like omnipresence. But what David is saying is like, no, no, no. All of you is everywhere all the time. And I can't escape that. And that is good. Yeah. And so thematically, what David is doing is the central part of this entire theme. The central part of this entire psalm is celebrating this aspect of who God is. And what happens as a result of that? He says the, that comprehending the vastness of God's knowledge in verse 5 and 6, it's too wonderful for, for David to comprehend, which is mirrored by, hey, you have made me wonderfully, and your works are wonderful. It's the same word that gets used. It's beyond David to comprehend how God operates, and he localizes it. He says, you formed me, right? He doesn't go look at the mountains. He doesn't look at the creation and nature around him and find all there, which he could. 
But in this psalm, he's saying, no, 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 you formed my inward parts. Your omniscience extends all the way to how you were intimately involved in creating me, right? And then we see some mirroring of every word being known in verse 4, and then every day is known even before it happens. Even before David says a word, God knows it. Even before a day happens, God knows what's going to happen. And so you see how that's where the chiasm leads to this one main section of everywhere, all the time, all of God is there. Yeah? Cool? All right, and what we will talk about is we will necessarily have to talk about Genesis 3.15. And this word for crushing, that's the word that David uses for even if the night were surrounding me, being about me, that word is actually crushing. Even if the night is crushing in on me, it doesn't bother you. Because even the darkness is like light to you. Right? So even if my experience is that there's this crushing sensation, it's not you. So remember, it's not that way for you. So we'll have to look at Genesis 3.15. We'll kind of dabble in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, who is gracious, full of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We'll talk about that. And then we have to hit on Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And I'll highlight those as we get there. Yeah? All right. So let's look at the first three verses. And this is where we see that David is talking about how God um, has searched or will be searching, how he has known, he knows God, uh, God knows David's ways and what his goals are, his aims. Um, and that's going to be mirrored in the last section of 17 through 24. Okay, we'll come around to that. So let me read one through three and just listen for this language of searching, knowing David's aims and his ways. O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Let's just stop right there. In verse 1, that word is yada. Yada means to know. And what David says in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 14, verse 23, the exact same word. God knows. So this is where we can see theologically from a big step back whenever David thinks about who God is, even as we are celebrating his omniscience, he knows all things, and he has all power, well, then he also is everywhere all at once. So we're really hitting on like the three omni-attributes of God, and David is hitting on that like right out the gate. In fact, I think Anthony even said that his Bible has uh, as the not over the superscript, but like the editorial margin. What does your heading say for this psalm? Something along those lines, right? Yeah, omniscience and omnipresence were the two that it actually has in the editorial notes for our Bible, what Psalm 139 says. So David is hitting on that. So, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. And I think that's like when I'm asleep and when I'm awake. When I'm doing nothing and when I'm doing all the things, right? It doesn't matter. He's kind of given these two polar opposites. You know everything about me, no matter what I'm doing. You discern my thoughts from afar. God doesn't really have to search David here, right? So in verse 1, he says, you have searched me. But then he says in verse 2, actually, yeah, you searched me, but you didn't really even have to do that because you already know from a distance, right? God's not limited in any way about what he knows and how he knows it. Verse 3, you searched out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There's no area of my life that David can say, well, God doesn't know about this one thing, though. 
right? Now, if we are on the other side of the board in book five, where we were seeing this anticipation of this new exodus, this new return from exile, and we're seeing God's salvation being brought about in the same way that he brought about salvation for Israel through the exodus, you can start seeing how God knowing everything is probably going to be really beneficial in that process, right? And so David is laying the foundation right out the gate that God has all this knowledge all the time. Yeah? Observations or questions or comments you have from verses 1, 2, and 3? All right, look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it all together. So, yeah, God has searched, and He actually knows my thoughts from afar. He doesn't actually even have to have me vocalize those thoughts, because verse 4 says, every word is already known before you speak it. Like, that's, have you ever considered, like, how crazy that would have to be for you to know every single word one person might speak before they ever spoke it? Like, that's wild, right? And for God... As the creator, which this is really what the psalm is about, he, David localizes creation as him, I was created. But in creation, God fully knows every single thing all the time without flaw, without defect, and he, do, he knows all of it now, regardless of when that thing may occur. And the reason for that is, theologically, we have to understand that the, the Christian view, the Jewish view, is that God stands outside of his creation. And one of those things that is a creation of God is, in fact, time, right? Even whenever we talked last week, tohu and bohu, and we were talking about the uh, shapeless and void, that there was a physical space that was created, but then there's filled with purpose. One of those things that was created with purpose was the stars and the constellations to mark seasons and days and times, right? So, like, that was something that had not existed and because of God's creation now exists. And since God makes it, he's not subject to it. He gets to stand outside of it, right? And so we experience time as like this linear thing. Well, God stands outside of it. And so he understands everything that happens all along the way at all times because he made it. Does that make sense? And, and the more you think about it, where you land is verses 5 and 6. Man, the more I think about it, like, it's too, it's too much for me. Right? That's where David's mind goes. So let's read verses 5 and 6. You hem me in, in a good way. You're before me and you're behind me. You lay your hand upon me. And when I start thinking about this aspect, that you know everything all the time, perfectly, always, man, it's too wonderful. It's too, I, I, I can't get it. it it's, it's beyond me. Yeah, that's how the psalm opens up with this clear indication of this is how David views who God is. Cool? All right, questions about the first six verses or so, or observations. Ed, you have something? Yep, you have hedged me behind him before. Yes, sir. Okay. You can look at it for protection to build a hedge around you. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, you build a fence to keep your thoughts from straying. Yeah, yeah, you hem them in. Like, literally, that's what you do with a fence. You hem it. From straying away. 
Yeah, so I think both of those lead to what my next point that we're going to get to is this. The word there for um, that David uses is it's a fairly common word. However, he uses it in a, in a fairly consistent way that we see in the Old Testament that is very gentle. The word there is shet. Shet. God lays his hand on you. That's what you see there in verse 5. You lay your hand upon me. This is not like a cumbersome God's leaning on this dude and forcing him to do what he wants him to do. No, no, no. It's a gentle thing. In fact, when you go to Genesis chapter 48, verse 14, whenever Jacob is about to die and he's got all of his 12 kids slash grandkids with Manasseh and... Uh, who are Joseph's other kids? Manasseh and Ephraim? Yeah. Um, so they come up and he puts his hands on them, but they, he kind of does this goofy thing, right? Well, Jacob's like about to die. He doesn't have like the ability to physically hurt somebody at this point. And the word that Moses uses is shet, shet. He puts his hands on there gently and he blesses them. It's the same word. And I think the point of what David's getting at there is he's pulling back all the way from this language of when the patriarch of you know Israel, the dude's name is Israel, and he's blessing all of these kids and he is setting their fortune, as it were, for the rest of their lives. What does he do? He gently blesses. What does God do? He hems me in before and behind me. He protects me. He guides me. He protects uh, even my destiny in that sense. And I think that's exactly what you're getting at there, Ed. And some of that is riding on just this one word, she'et. Yeah? Make sense? So it's a gentle action. Cool? All right, so let's talk about this middle part. Or do you have something else you want to follow up there with, Ed? Mm-hmm. You know it all together. Yep. Yes. And that is the word in which that is key here. So when we say searched, known, ways, and aims, you use the word motivation. I think that's exactly it. In fact, a little bit later on, whenever he talks about you have formed my inward parts, we're actually going to talk about that word. It actually literally means kidneys. You form my kidneys. Okay, cool. Great. What? That's weird. Well, the moment you start to realize that uh, the way that Hebrews, David, the way they thought about where the seat of emotions were, where do we think the seat of our emotions sit when we talk about what we feel? Where is it at? Your heart. Is that where emotions are at? Physiologically, no. It's in your brain, okay? But we, you know what I mean when I say my heart. The way that Hebrews would talk about it is they would use that word for your kidneys. In fact, the Greeks did the exact same thing, and the Greek word is your splunkna, your guts, right? Your guts. When you start getting anxious, what feels weird? Your guts, your stomach, it's just like, ugh, you feel uneasy, right? So what David is saying is my inward parts, my kidneys, the seat of my emotions, you formed it. The seat of your emotions is driving your thoughts, your motivations, and eventually your words. And God made every one of them. He's familiar with it, and he knows already. So you are absolutely correct. I think that is what 
David is getting that. That's why we have searched, known, your aims, your motivations, and your ways. Yeah? So everything from who David was before he even existed all the way to everything he's going to say and do, God already knows. Yeah? So where does that lead us in verses 7 through 12? Well, it's going to burst out in praise. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? And what are the examples that David gives to demonstrate that you can't outrun God? What are the examples he gives in 7 through 12? You tell me. Look at your Bible, read it out loud. If I ascend all the way to the heavens, or if I go all the way to Sheol, guess what I run into? You and your presence. What is David trying to articulate there? I can go all the way up, as high as I can conceive, or I can go all the way down as far as I conceive, and what am I going to find? You. Okay? What's another contrast that demonstrates God's presence everywhere all at once? This is where the poetry might trip us up, but let me show us. Look at verse 9. What is David talking about there? If I were to get my wings and go all the way to the dawn, what's he talking about? No, no, but where is he talking about? What direction is he talking about? East. If I go to the dawn, where's the sunrise? East. If I go to the sea, what sea is he talking about? The Mediterranean, which is West. So he just said, if I go all the way to the top, you're there. If I go all the way to the bottom, you're there. If I go all the way to where the sun rises and I keep going even a little further, where it'll rise over there, or if I go all the way to the other part of the sea on the other direction, he has now given us, you know, if you're thinking you're X, Y, and Z, he's given us that, that, that Y, and now he's kind of given us that X, I guess. And the only thing we got left is this other third dimension, but like, okay, I don't, I don't think that's, he's, He's not giving us a physics problem here, but like, you see what he's doing. He's, he's scoping out. There's nowhere I can go. So since physically there's no place I could go, what's the next example he gives? Look in verse 11 and 12. What'd you say, Joella? The darkness. Okay, cool. If I can't outrun him physically, well, maybe I can hide from him. Maybe I can get somewhere where I can hide something from Ed and he won't know I'll go over there. What's the problem with that? Ah, well, darkness can hide some stuff from Ed and from me, but it can't hide anything from God, right? And so it doesn't matter where you go. Go bury yourself where there is no ambient light whatsoever, and you think, ah, I finally outran God. Uh, no, you didn't. He is light. He, doesn't, he is not concerned with, you know, how many photons are flying around in the joint at any given time? Like, he made them jokers. He's okay with, with or without them. He knows, right? That's his point. And squeezed in between there is that verse 9 and 10, or excuse me, verse 10 and 11. What's going to happen is your hand is going to lead me, and your right hand, that same one that was gently put on my shoulder, is going to usher me to wherever you need me to be. You hem me in. You protect me. You hedge me up. This is where I am, and it's because of who you are, and you know everything already. And so David is celebrating God's omniscience. He knows everything, his omnipresence. He's everywhere. And because of he is the creator, which is where we're going about to see here in just a bit, he's got all power anyway. Yeah? So we're hitting the big three omnis right out the gate of this song. 
Are you seeing how that works in the poetry? Are you seeing how that works for theologically? This, this has some really big implications for us as his creation. Yeah. Sue, do you have anything you want to throw out there? Mm-hmm. The heading, yeah. 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 So it's four, not just three. Well, I mean, it, one, that's, a, that's an editorial thing that some dude made up as opposed to what we think was inspired by David. However, but your point there still stands like whether we're talking about God's omniscience and his eternality and his omnipresence and his omni, uh, omnipotency, like we can add all these attributes, but they come back around to he is sovereign over all creation, because he's the one who holds all authority. He's the one who holds all these, you know, like, we start tacking all those ones on there. So yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I smell what you're stepping in. Um, I think that's David's point, yeah? All right, that's seven through 12. Any questions or observations? And I'm telling you, we're all looking down here at this 17 through 24, like, okay, what are we gonna do when we get to verse 19 though? Ah, just wait. Let's look at 13 through 15. 13 through 15, you form my inward parts. My kidneys. You form my guts. If it's in Greek, it's just splunkna. It's a great word. Like where my emotions reside. That's what generates my emotions and in many ways my motivations. You made that. Incidentally, if God's the one who made it, what implications does that have for David as the one who has those kidneys, those inward parts? What implications does that have for him as a man who has been created this way? Does David get to do whatever he pleases because he has some kidneys? And you're shaking your head going, no, of course not. Who gets to tell David what he should do with them kidneys? God, why? Because he made it, man. He made it. He can do what he pleases with it. And guess what? That's what scripture does is it lines out. God's creation has been given a physical form, a shape, and a purpose. And he says, this is how you're supposed to live, right? So, I mean, I think there's some really clear implications there. You form my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Why is he running to the womb here? More importantly, why does he say a little bit later on in verse 15, I was being woven together in the depths of the earth. Does David think, really, that he was like in gestation under some rocks? Is that what he actually thinks? And you're shaking your head like, no, of course not. Right? So what is he trying to get across when he's talking about being woven together in the rocks, as it were, in the depths, in his mother's womb? What is he trying to get across there? Secrecy. And where is that theme picked up on? That's from verse 11 and 12. In the darkness. If you are David, do you understand deoxyribonucleic acid or chromosomes or mitosis or gestation in general? Like, eh, yeah? Like, we know what produces life in humanity and the continuation of progeny, and that's, uh, you trust God for the rest, <laughs> right? Because you are un... That is knowledge that is beyond David. And he's given an example of like, what does it look like in this darkness, this secrecy that no one comprehends? Or what about birth and gestation and how that actually operates? God knows. God knows. I don't, but he does. I see the result of it, but I don't know the process intimately. We have great understanding of 
DNA and chromosomes and all sorts of stuff about our bodies. And that is a grace of God. However, there are certain things we still don't comprehend medically about life in general, right? We just, those are just realities and that's fine. Yeah. And so David reaches for that example of what looks like in the darkness, some incomprehensible thing. And he localizes and says, look, you made me, you put them kidneys in me. My unformed substance, right? That word there is golem, golem, hypoxlegomenon. You know what that word means? Hypoxlegomenon. It is a word that has been written in Greek, lego, means I write. And then hypox, or hapax, if you're from Arkansas, it means once. It's the only time this entire, this word appears in the entire Bible. David reaches for this one word and says, hey, that unformed substance that kind of comes from this idea of something that wasn't rolled up yet, that's what he's trying to get at. Like there's this baby that I get that's been rolled together, but before it was rolled up and I got to hold it, that golem, God, you knew intimately what was going on there. Yeah. And so he says, those things I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I have been made in such a way that is amazing and beyond me. And then he follows that up in verse 16. Hey, before I even had one of these days, before I was born, before I did anything, you already knew everything that was going to happen. Right? Let's look at verse 16. You saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, even when there was none of them. So does David think that God literally has a book and he's writing these jokers down, like, as your days happen? Like, no. It's poetry. And what he's getting at is, God already knows everything all the time. Including what happened with that unrolled up mess that's gestation, that he doesn't understand. Yep. Questions? Because then we get to the hard stuff. But this is actually where I contend... This is, even though the thrust of Psalm 139 is we could read Psalm 139, and if we just stopped right there, this would be a great kind of thing to celebrate and read out loud in scripture reading time of a worship service. But whenever you get to verses 19 and on, that's when you start seeing the purpose of book five of the Psalter. That's when you get to see the purpose of the Psalter as a whole and scripture and these themes of how God is working through history. Yeah? Before we hit that, any questions about everything that's happened in 16 and before? Ed, you look like you're chewing on something. I want to give you a chance to say it before I pass you by. Yes, sir. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so Ed's comment is there is that David is saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We can see in history, David was a normal dude. What we would typify as like, this is what a dude looks like as a baby, a child, a grown man. That's him. But there are babies who were born with deficiencies, whether it is genetic anomalies, whether it is birth defect in general. And what we would have to assume 
and I think rightly endorsed because scripture elsewhere endorses this, is that that child, regardless of the circumstances of birth, the circumstances of, uh, of fertilization even, that child has dignity because they are created in the image of God. They are created. Regardless of whatever circumstances come as a result of sin in the world, God still knows all the time at all places perfectly. Like, He is aware. Now, does that make it easier for us to say, like, yeah, and Down syndrome still exists. Praise God. Like, well, I don't know if we should be praising God for a chromosomal anomaly because I think that's a result of the fall. However, we can praise God that there is still God's goodness even through that, that there are people who have Down syndrome and live lives that are fruitful and are blessed by God's grace. Praise God for that. And I think a lot of times what people will do, Ed, is they'll look at the negative side of that story and say, oh, well, yeah, what do you do with a child with some kind of, you know, predisposed genetic disorder and like whatever it may be? Like, yeah, that's problematic. And we say, yeah, and that's why God's not in control. I'm like, whoa, hang on. Like, you just made a leap and you jumped over all sorts of biblical content to say, no, 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 God's still in control. And you have just removed the presence of sin and the realities of its effects in the world. That's the difference between our worldview and one that is very secular. And the baby was created intentionally, knit together in his mother's womb. By God, and there is purpose within that. Yeah, absolutely. We, we must endorse that. Yeah? All right. So let's talk about some hard stuff. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts. Well, hang on. We, we just got done talking about my thoughts, and now David's flipping the script. This is what I think is going on in verse 17. How precious are to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. And then what he says in verse 18. If I could count them, they'd be more the sand. And I awake and you are still, or I'm still with you. I think this is what's going on. David is saying, okay, I'm going to do my best. I'm, I'm actually going to try to understand the vastness of your knowledge. And before I go to bed, I'm going to start naming everything I know about you. And then he goes to sleep. And let's suppose that David keeps enumerating every single thing he knows about God. And eventually what you get is like, you're at the beach and you're trying to count grains of sand. And when you wake up, you're not done. But guess who's still there? God is. Like, that's describing the vastness of who God is. And as a result of that, as David is reflecting on what he knows to be true of God, what he knows to be true of himself as the king of Israel who has been given a promise that there will be a king who is going to sit on God's throne forever and is going to come from David, and he starts recounting those things, then we hit verse 19. You know what? When I start thinking about that, I hate your enemies, God. Whoa, how did you get there, David? Because he is rightly seeing his role in allegiance to that creator. Let's go turn back to Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 2. Go all the way to the very beginning. We said at the very outset of our study, you can go back and listen to it, in Psalm 2, Psalms 1 and 2 kind of set the paradigm for everything that will happen as like major milestones in the rest of the Psalter. 
And Psalm 1 is talking about this clear indication of those who are righteous and those who are wicked. Psalm 2 starts expanding it out from people per son to groups of people. Psalm 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? It ain't just some guy. It's entire nations. It's the people, the goyim. Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves apart and the rulers take counsel together. And they're coming together with a good plan for a party they're going to have. And it's going to be God honoring. Is that what verse 2 of Psalm 2 is about? No, they're taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Right? They have set themselves up as enemies of God, and they look to overthrow him. Verse 3, what are we going to do? Guys, let's get together. Let's figure out how we can burst their bonds apart. Let's get free of this whole God situation, and let's take care of it ourselves. And then you start looking at the word that David uses in the Psalm 139, that darkness is covering him. That word he actually uses is the word for crush. Even if darkness crushes me. And he's wanting you to remember the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Crushing. He is putting us little breadcrumbs there to make us remember this is the promise that God made. And Exodus 34, 6 through 7. We love refraining or having the refrain of God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to a thousand generations. And then we stop quoting. But how does the rest of Exodus 34, 6 through 7 end? But who by no means will clear the guilty. There is judgment. And then we see in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do these kings come together? What are they going to do? Man, they are going to plot to overthrow God and His anointed. The word there is Meshiach, Messiah, the one who is anointed. Yeah, he means the king, but also he means the Christ that eventually will come from David's line. Then let's look at Psalm 110, because this is where all those words start coming together. And this is where we're going to unlock what's happening in Psalm 139. If you turn to Psalm 110... Again, of David, a pretty big psalm in the New Testament. Uh, one of the favorites of the New Testament authors. Let's look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is the anointed. That is the king who is coming. And he is a priest forever. The Lord is at your right hand. And he, the Lord, the anointed, the priest that's in the order of the Melchizedek, of of Melchizedek, verse five, five, he's at your right hand, and what will he do to these kings on the day of his wrath? He's going to shatter them. Psalm 2 says, hey, those kings are gathering up against the anointed. And David says, well, that's me. They're gathering against me. They're gathering against him as, yeah, the king of Israel, but who are they gathering against him as in more grand themes? David is the seed of the woman. And those kings who are gathering against him to shatter the anointed, and they're going to burst their bonds apart in Psalm 2 and 3, uh, Psalm 2, verse 3, David says, nah, that, that's not how this is going to work. Because the promise made in Genesis 3 is like, no, 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 the seed of the woman, those who are faithful to God, we're going to crush them. We will crush him because that's what God said. 
And then he runs to Psalm 10, 4 and 5 and says, no, 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 I am part of that. I am in the lineage of that king, that priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he's going to crush their heads. He's going to shatter them. And then we get Psalm 139, verse 19. Slay the wicked. Slay them. Psalm 1 already lays out the righteous and the wicked. And then Psalm 2 talks about what the wicked do together. Slay them. They're speaking against God with malicious intent. That is them taking counsel together in Psalm 2, 1 through 3. They're trying to overthrow God's plans. But what do we know about His sovereignty and His omnipotence and His omniscience? This is the plan. And so David is actually, in verses 19 through 22, he's actually saying, I'm actually with God on this one. I'm not with the world. I'm not. And James, I think, is picking up on this. And he says, you do realize that to be in friendship and in partnership with the world is to be at odds with God? I think James is kind of picking up on some of that language in James 4.4. And David is saying, I'm not with the world on this one. I'm with God. Because that's the promises that have already been made in Genesis. That's the promises that was made to me as if there's going to be a king who's ever going to sit on your throne. It's going to come from my line, and I have a role to play in that. Yeah? And we, as believers in Christ, we are in that same ilk as well. That's our lineage. We are part of the seed of the woman, and we, as the church of God, as God's people, will have a role to play in crushing the head of the serpent in different ways, yes, but ultimately that culminates with Christ, right? And what David is saying in verses 19 through 22 is like, yep, I am going to do that. That's what I prefer to do. And then he wraps it up in 22, or 23, 24. Hey, God, uh, search me again. Make sure that I'm not in allegiance with the world. Know my heart and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me. Does anyone have another translation of that in verse 24? See if there's any wicked way. You, you notice as a king who is supposedly working for God here, he goes, actually, God, check me on that. I want to make sure I'm in the right camp. I don't actually want to find myself in the king's camp over here who's conspiring against you. I want to be with you. Your translation, Sue? Point out anything in me that offends you, right? Any hurtful way. The way in Hebrew is talked about as the way of pain. Well, the way of pain for who? Well, I think ultimately it's hurtful against God's demands and His sovereignty and what He rightfully demands of us. But also, there are clear effects for us. Like whenever we go against God's plan, like that hurts you too. Make no mistake. And what David is praying at the end of this whole psalm is actually, let's, let's come back around and say, I know you search me. I know you know everything. How about you let me know if there's something I need to change? And the implication, what do you think David's going to do with that knowledge if God shows him, hey, David, here's this thing. What can we imply that David is going to do with that knowledge? He'll change. Because he doesn't want to be the Psalm 2, 1 through 3 kings, he wants to be with the one who is with the anointed. So make sure that there's nothing in me that needs to change. And then what will happen? You're going to lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah? All right. That is Psalm 139. Observations. Paul. Two ninety-seven. 
Yeah. What's the name of that hymn? Or search me, O God. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's the point of that psalm is like it's picking up on these themes and whether or not the hymn writer, whether or not we before tonight saw that this is actually a much grander movement from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and these greater themes of a new exodus and a new return from exile that's standing in for salvation and how God is working through history in this big redemptive arc. Whether we picked up on that or not before, now you do. And that changes the fact that God knows everything, everywhere, all the time, at once. That actually helps reframe more firmly the implications for us as God's creation in 7 through 12. Yeah? So. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So David is fully aware that there are things that he purposely does that's breaking God's demands. And there's also other things categorically that he stumbled into, as it were. Either way, it's still sin, right? And it still needs to be rectified by God and by God's demands in the way that he says this is how you do it. And so he does that. Yeah? Other observations before we take a little bit of time to pray through this thematically applying it so that we are praying through Psalm 139. Other observations or questions? Paul. He knew it perfectly, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the joke there is like, oh, God knows the number of hairs on your head. Like, yeah, for me and Paul, that's a little easy, <laughs> right? But at the same time, like, the, the point there is that God is fully omniscient. He knows all things perfectly, and he doesn't have to learn something. And he doesn't have to wait for that thing to happen before he learns about it. He already knows it before. Like, that's what we mean by omniscience. It's a much grander in scale. All right, other questions or observations. Does my framing of all of this, especially with Psalm 2 and 110, does that help us make sense of what happens in 19 through 22 a little bit better? And that's why we need to read big chunks of Scripture and see these big themes, but also we need to read like really closely at times. So, I mean, that's what we do here at church. We try to give you both perspectives but here's the deal. This is exactly what I said last fall when we were doing our hermeneutics series. The scriptures, the Bible, is meditation literature that's meant to be ingested over a lifetime. Okay? 
And so the longer that we stare at these things and we see these themes, the more we start making those connections elsewhere because I think they are there for us to find them. That's the meditation part of the scripture that we have to dwell on them and see how God operates through it. Yeah? All right. So the whole purpose of what we've been doing this series is, okay, we read the poetry. We understood the poetry. If I take the wings of the dawn and I go to the sea, well, he's talking about east and west, right? It, we see the poetry. We see the meaning behind it. We take a big step back and see the point of the whole psalm and even the bigger portions of theology. Great. Well, what do we do with that now? We need to pray through that. How can we apply the principles or the big picture or even some of the small picture things from Psalm 139 here in just a moment whenever I pray for us? How do we apply Psalm 139 into our prayer so we're praying through the Scriptures? You tell me. What's a way that we can pray using the language or the themes of 139 to honor God? Ed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Ed's comment there is be reminded and even be thankful, I would say, to put words in your mouth, to be thankful that God created us with individualized plans and purposes, right? And if we're pulling on the strings from Isaac, if we're looking at Isaac as the example in Scripture, like, he's kind of ordinary. He's unremarkable in many ways, but that was God's plan, and because that was how God had his purposes worked out in Isaac's life, that adds a value that you can't assign to it. That's a value all of his own that comes directly from God, right? That's something to be reminded of that that's from God to us. That's a gift. That's a graciousness that we experience and we should celebrate it. Yeah. What else? What's something else we can celebrate from Psalm 139 and praise God for? He is always with us. Yes. We took the tone there of David's like fleeing and running from God. That's like a really negative thing, but also let's look at it positively. Maybe you feel like God's not near to you. Psalm 139 says, no, not only is he not far from you, he's got his hand on you. Shet, gently on your shoulder. He's got you hemmed in, right? He is there. Praise God for that. Yeah. Even if we feel like he's distant, he's there. What's another way we can pray? Aro, do you have a thought you want to throw out there for us? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a freedom that we all get to experience, and I think the way I would relate it, and if I'm kind of reading between the lines what you're saying, if God already knows every word, every thought, every intention, every motive that we have, that's actually liberating. Because sometimes that's going to turn out, man, your motives were kind of garbage. God already knew that. Sometimes your actions are kind of garbage. God already knew that too. And before you ever did any useful thing for God, Christ already died for you. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. And there's a freedom that comes with knowing, oh, God still loved me even before I did anything worthwhile for him, right? Because he already knew everything, everywhere, all the time.
Yeah. Any other final things that you want to say? This is how we can pray. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the comment there from Philip is that whenever God gets a hold of you and he actually, you invite him into this process of like, okay, search me, God's going to tell you what's going on, but he's not just putting you on blast and like, yeah, here's all your problems, guy, fix it. No, 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 he will lead you in the way of life everlasting. That's where shet, shet, he's got his hand on you. Yes, yeah, son, I know. Yeah, you're really messing this thing up. You know you're not supposed to be doing that. Here's how we're going to fix it. Here's what I want you to do. Remember, I got you hemmed in. Can't, can't run away from me. Go turn the light out. Doesn't matter. I know. Right? He doesn't just put you on blast. He shows you what you are to do. And I think he shows us, A, through his word, B, through his spirit within us, and C, through his spirit and the people that he surrounds us with. Right? There's this collective action that we must take part in as well. And that's a good thing from God. Yeah? All right. Anything else you want to throw out there about ways we can pray? And then I'll close us. Angela, you got something? Yeah. So Angela's comment there is in verse 23 and 24, David prays, like, I don't want to end up like those other kings. Let me be really clear. David as a king of Israel, as the king of Israel, like, you're not like him, okay? You're categorically not like David, okay? However, you are exactly like David. You are in his lineage. You are the seed of the woman. You are united to David through Christ. With him, we share all things, right? And so in that sense, like, there ain't no difference between you and the king of Israel here. And if he's praying, hey, man, don't let me be found wanting, yeah, we should probably do the same thing. And what we know is that whenever we pray, I don't want to be found wanting, God's going to say, yeah, I know, I know. Here's how we're going to fix it. And he gently leads us. Yeah, I like that. That's a good comment. All right, well, then let me pray for us, and then we will wrap this up um, for tonight. Father, I thank you for your word and that we could go a couple more hours um, looking at Psalm 139. Uh, I thank you for the way that you have intimately been involved in not just our physical lives and gestation and birth, um, but you have intimately been involved in creation of the world. You have intimately been involved in the way that life is meant to work best because you as the creator get to define those terms. And you are intimately involved in the way in which we even get to read about how involved you are. God, I thank you for the fact that you have so superintended the process of us receiving Scripture and hearing from our brother David that we get to benefit from your wisdom and from the wisdom of our brother from thousands of years ago. God, I thank you for the way that you know all things everywhere all at once and that that is a beautiful truth that we can rest in and that we get to actually take solace in that you already know future failure, you know past failure, and that we still get to experience your covenantal love in which won't fail. God, you hem us in, you have your hand on us, and we are thankful for that. And God, when we fail, because it is inevitable, when we fail, I pray you would send your spirit to spur us to want to be searched by you through your spirit. I pray that you would 
calls us to ask our friends, hey, do you see something going wrong in my life? And I pray that you would use those who have been called by your name, who share in this lineage as the seed of the woman, that they would be able to speak truth into our lives as well, and that that would bring us back into right relation with each other and with you, and that we wouldn't be found wanting in any way. God, I thank you for all of your attributes that are innumerable in many ways, but also very near to us. And God, we love you. I pray that we will have learned more about how you actually relate to your creation in a very intimate way and that you are imminent and you are here, but yet you are still transcendent and you stand beyond creation and outside of time. And that blows my mind, but God, that is who you are. It is knowledge that is too wonderful for me. It is too far above me. And yet I get to grasp some of it. God, I pray along with our brother Paul in Ephesians 3, whenever he says that he wants us to know the unknowable and to be able to search your love for us, God, I pray you would show us a little bit more about your love for us and whatever circumstances that we have experienced or the circumstances we will experience. God, we know that we can trust that those are the good things that you have for us and that you love us and that we get to catch a glimpse of your love that is beyond expansive in the heavens and all the way down into the depths and the God that you overflow in that way. And we get to experience some of it here. We look forward to the day when we experience it even more fully and we see dimly now, but eventually we'll see with clear eyes, being able to perceive your face and to be with our savior, your son, um, in the way everlasting. Um, but God, until then, I pray that you would keep us and that you would show us how we are to live in relation to one another in relation to the world you have created, and so that we might be a beacon of light and that we might be the people that get to demonstrate your goodness at work, at home, where we play. And that, God, that that would be a reality for our lives. We know that that only comes through your Spirit and because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, next week is the last week we're in the psalms psalm 144 that's where we'll be and then we will take one week off to get ready for equipping institute which starts on august 30th and then boom we're rolling with the semester there yeah all right if you got any other questions let me know